You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Rubab Onima is a creative director with a deep-rooted intelligence in history, culture, music, and the way those things converge in well-done work. Self-identifying as shy, it's fair to say that most would describe her as opinionated, direct, or even rebellious. With a geographically diverse lived experience, Rube actually thinks of travel as a necessary form of education. And during this conversation, we learn a great deal more while we walk through her thoughts on knowing the difference between things like culture and marketing, heritage and nostalgia, and the contemporaneity found in the youth rebellion against ideologies that today deserve to be broken. This is Ruba Abunima, and we are talking about what's contemporary now. So we always set the stage with a little biographical nod and talk about the formative years. So what did that look like for Ruba Abunima? So the formative years were the late 70s for me. I just aged myself. I was lucky enough to be living in London at the time. And it was the convergence of punk rock and hip hop. And those two moments in history changed my life forever. I would say that it started with punk. I was very young at the time, really young. I wasn't even a teenager, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I think anybody who does anything in the creative field, I think most people that I know started with music and music changed my life. That music changed my life. From that very early age, I knew that the work that I was going to do was going to be influenced by punk forever. And that's remained the case. I didn't know what graphic design was at the time. I didn't know what that meant, but I was unbelievably obsessive with the records that were coming out at the time, the Sex Pistols and later on The Clash and Public Image. And I still have all of those vinyls. And then obviously much later, the work of Peter Saville the work of Neville Brody, the work of Jamie Reed, the greatest of all time, that work has affected me to this day. And at what point do you feel like you really dialed into your own awareness of visual language and the sort of ubiquitous nature of design? So I think honestly, it was at that time, maybe it was just a perfect storm of a lot of things happening at once. I don't come from a very artistic family. My father was uh, in public service. My mother, you know, prior to her having a family was a teacher. But I, from a very early age, I think I remember when I was about the age of five, we were living in Jordan at the time where I was born. I entered a competition, some drawing competition that my mother helped me with. And I think I was a runner up. I knew that there was something in that sort of the tactile, the visual world that I was pre-programmed to do. I didn't know what it was. I think I was incredibly lucky to have lived in London at the time that I lived in because London, and I maintain this to this day, is a design city. Everything is beautifully designed. There is such a, a tradition of typography. And, you know, even if you go to any supermarket, most of the products are really beautifully designed. And I became very aware of these things very young, but I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know that there was even an, a world where you could make a living doing these things. But I actually lived in Ealing at the time. We had a next door neighbor, much older than me. And, you know, I would hang out with them in the street on the bikes and stuff. And the older brother of one of my friends was a graphic designer. And that's the first time I'd ever heard that term. 
And I remember going up into his bedroom and watching him work. And he was really a brilliant. I'll never forget this. He was illustrator and graphic designer. And he showed me the work he was doing on packaging and fashion packaging. And I don't even remember who the brands were at the time. They're high street brands. But that was it. That was it. That was my calling. I learned what those terms were. And that was what I was going to do. And nothing was going to stop me. And what were the next steps then once that decision had been made? Well, I was really young. I still had to do secondary school. For secondary school, we ended up moving to Brussels. My father's job moved us to Brussels. And I was very upset about that because, you know, what was Brussels? Not realizing that actually Brussels was a great city for the arts and for music. So I did my secondary school there. It was a very academic school, no arts programs at all, no art program whatsoever. You know, a couple of art classes here and there. I did my baccalaureate. I got my baccalaureate by the skin of my teeth because I didn't really care much about that. Although I will say I didn't care. I don't care much about formal education. I think it's very outdated, but that's a different conversation. It's an important one that I love to ask people in successful creative positions because it's an ongoing conversation as to whether or not it's a requirement. And at the end of the day, there are tactile skill sets involved in a lot of what it is you're discussing, especially at that time. It was more analog in terms of process. Well, it was all analog. Mm -hmm. I did my baccalaureate in uh, English and French literature and philosophy. And I will say that parts of that I still use to this day. You know, I think that the work that I do must reference other creative fields, whether that's writing or whether it's history or whether it's fine arts. I think that we can't do our jobs. I can't do my job today unless I'm able to reference things. So that did give me a foundation, an arts foundation. I was not interested in science or mathematics by any stretch of the imagination. It wasn't creative enough for me in terms of analytical thinking. So after that, I went to art school and that was the deal with my parents. It's like, I'll do all this and I'll get through school and I'll get my baccalaureate and that's great. And I'll go to art school. And I did. And it's funny because my mother recently told my daughter, and I didn't know this, uh, we were visiting my parents and she recently told my daughter, you know, it's kind of amazing what your mother has done. You know, she's done okay for herself. You know, I could never understand why she wanted to go to art school and why she wanted to be poor for the rest of her life. Um, so my parents let me go, but I, I don't think they really understood why or what the purpose was. And I don't blame them. You know, they came from a different place, a different world, a different culture. And to me, it was the only possible way for me to get through life. I went to art school. I ended up at Parsons. To your point, it was all analog. There wasn't a computer on campus. It was really at the beginning. I think I graduated and I think the first Apple computer was released with some sort of rudimentary graphic capability. And that was another moment in my life where it was, you know, eye-opening and I saw the future but I, I left art school and I thought that I was going to be, you know, cutting and pasting and doing everything by hand. And I must say that I'm very glad that I learned to do it by hand because I think that I believe in craftsmanship. And I think that even understanding how to do things on a computer, I'm able to do it better because I know how to do it by hand. To this day, I can look at printed page and tell you what the point size is and what the leading is just by looking at it because that's what we had to learn to do at the time. 
So do you think that despite the fact that we've arrived in an almost exclusively digital process era, having that in the arsenal gives you a sort of superior ability to do that job? I don't know about if it's a superior ability. I think it's a more instinctive ability. Like I can do things more instinctively. I can do things more confidently because I've been doing them for a long time and I never stopped doing them. But I also think that it gave me, you know, if you want to design beautiful furniture, it helps if you know how to do carpentry. Of course. I'm a big believer in craft. And I think that honing that craft in an analog way has helped me to do things better. But also, I think that there's a big misnomer in terms of the digital world. A lot of people think, well, I learned how to use the software, so I'm a designer. And any good designer will tell you the exact opposite. Just because you know how to use the software doesn't make you a designer. I know how to drive a car, but I'm not a race car driver. I just think that you need to be a designer first and then use the tools to create something. It's the other way around. I hear it all the time. Well, I want to learn how to, you know, I want to learn how to use InDesign so I can be a graphic designer. I'm like, no, be a graphic designer first and learn the software while you're learning to be a graphic designer. So... I just think that the digital world has given access, really great access, but I think there's a misunderstanding of what that access actually means or what the purpose of that access is. It also brings us to the point that the kind of back-end programming behind a lot of the titles people wear, there's a large variety, one of which is, of course, the role of creative director. And it's somewhat of a reductive question to ask people, but I feel like because the perspectives are so varying, it's interesting to hear from each one. So to you, what would you consider the crux of creative direction? I have a funny story to tell you. When I was in art school, going back to art school, in my typography class, I don't remember the name of my teacher at the time, but I know he worked in some very big advertising firm. When advertising firms were of value, somebody put their hand up and said, how long does it take to become a creative director? And he sort of was like, okay, everyone put your pencils down. This is how long it takes. It takes about 20 years. And everybody was aghast. Like there was an audible silence in the room. And he's like, yeah, because, you know, you have to get out of art school. Then you have to intern. Then after interning, you become a junior graphic designer. Or then you become a slightly up senior graphic designer. Then you become an art director. Then you become a this, then you become a that. And he went through all of the different layers that is required to learn the skills. And then he said, and after 20 years, you may gain the title of a creative director, but many of you may not because you'll give up, you'll change course, you'll go somewhere else. And he goes, I think about Maybe three of you in this room will ever get the title of creative director. And when you do get it, you know you'll actually have earned it. And we were just like, holy shit, what is going on? How are we going to do this? And actually, as it turns out, he was 100% right because it took me about 20 years. It took me about 20 years to gain that title. I think the only reason that I was able to gain that title is because I did learn all the skills. I learned typography and photography and illustration and all of the different disciplines that are required to bring a campaign to life or a packaging project to life or a branding project to life. And the only way that I think you can be a viable creative director is if you do understand those skills, because the job is to be almost like a conductor of an orchestra. You have to understand all of the different roles and responsibilities, and you have to be able to bring them all together for a common goal. 
that is what a creative director does. And everything else is bullshit. That's exactly the point. It's almost the crown jewel title that people bear within companies. And yet I've read that you prefer to identify as a graphic designer. And I get that there's nuance in the statement of what it was you meant, but what did you mean? I prefer to identify as a graphic designer because one, I think that the title of creative director today has been completely devalued and doesn't have much meaning, unfortunately. And also I believe that to be a creative director in my world, which is in the world of branding and messaging and communication, I believe you have to come from an understanding of communication. What is the greatest form of communication in the world? It's graphic design. Graphic design is so fundamentally important to every aspect of our lives. You wouldn't be able to get from A to B or A to Z on a highway if graphic design wasn't involved. You wouldn't, you'd miss every flight that you would ever take if not for graphic design, because the second you enter an airport, you follow signs from the entrance of the airport to your gate. That's graphic design that leads you to get anywhere. So I believe that a tactile skill is required in order to be somebody who's able to create meaningful communicative campaigns. And so I prefer the term graphic designer because that is my skill set. That really is my foundation for everything. And like I just said, I think that everybody's a creative director. So you've got an Instagram account, you're a creative director. So if I tell people that I'm a creative director, what does that actually mean today? It's lost its meaning. It's all so absolutely true. On the subject of graphic design being the ultimate form of communication, how do you balance the heritage and legacy of a brand with the need to innovate or appeal to younger generations? I think respecting heritage and legacy of a brand is actually really important. I think understanding the brand DNA, understanding its raison d'etre and its meaning in the world is really important. But I think you have to have a very distinct perspective in terms of heritage versus nostalgia. I think nostalgia can be dangerous and weak. I think heritage is very, very important, but I think we have to understand the world that we live in. We have to understand, no pun intended, what's contemporary now, and uh, <laughs> or pun intended. And, and I think we have to be able to weave in the necessary, important DNA of a brand with what resonates in today's world and understand also who the audience is, who are we talking to? I think one of the biggest issues that brands have, and I'm not speaking about any specific brand, is that they gain a customer base and they try as hard as possible to hold on to that customer base. Whereas there's a lot of thinking now, but there's not often thinking forward, thinking future. And then all of a sudden they're like, hold on a second, we don't have the youth and we don't have the next generation. They're not looking at us. They're not talking to us and we're not talking to them. Quick, let's fix it. Whereas I think that if you're moving along with the culture, you never have to fix it. But I, you know, that's a hard thing to achieve because you have to always be understanding where you are in the culture, where you sit in the culture. And, you know, culture versus marketing, culture always wins. But it's not how corporations operate. They operate through marketing. And um, by the time they catch up with the culture, then it's just marketing. 
it's insane how articulate you are on this. It all makes such perfect sense. It's not only ephemeral, it can be quite elusive or difficult to quantify in terms of the outcomes and how you measure their impact or success. Do you have certain criteria or metrics that you use? I don't use metrics, but you know, corporations love to use metrics. Mm -hmm. So I just let them handle that. I just think that after having done this for such a long time, and I love what I do, I'm deeply passionate about what I do. I think that any passion that becomes a purpose is, I mean, I'm just a very lucky person that I was able to achieve that. To me, it's a lot of it is instinct. A lot of it is just feeling and understanding and immersing myself and living and breathing the world that we work in. I really love it. I don't stop absorbing it. You know, I don't go to work in the morning and then roll up the metal grid and then roll it down in the evening. I just don't do that. It's all day, every day. And I plus, I'm a glutton for information. I'm an absolute, like anything I could learn, anything that I can see, any discovery I can make is just is super exciting for me. And so when you've got all of that surrounding you, that's the analysis that I need. I worked at a, a beauty brand, Shiseido, for a couple of years in Japan. They wanted to launch makeup and they wanted to launch a red lipstick. Now, red lipstick in Japan is a very controversial concept, believe it or not. Japanese women and Asian women are very elegant and very understated. So a red lipstick is quite a controversy. And you want to talk about analysis. I never forget that we launched this red lipstick. We launched a campaign. We did it with not a lot of data, not a lot of analytics, which is fine for me. But when I saw a line around the counter the Shiseido counter at Isitan in Ginza waiting to buy this red lipstick. That was all the analytics that I needed and it sold out. So what more do you need? That's proof of concept right there. Absolutely. And why is it that you think it's still so hard for corporations to understand that process over prioritizing marketing that's not necessarily directly plugged into that instinct or culture that comes from the creative director such as yourself? I think it's a control thing. And mm -hmm. I think... I'm going to say something really controversial now. I don't think marketing people have any instinct. So how can they rely on instinct if they don't have it? Well, I guess the next question would then be, why is it that marketing people are making these final decisions when clearly the creatives are informing the most effective choices? It's the structure of corporations. I don't think that's the case for every corporation, to be honest with you. I think a lot of corporations and you can see the ones that do well and the ones that don't do well. I think the ones that do well, the ones that are successful, the ones that are the ones that we talk about more often than not are actually very creatively led. The luxury world that we live in is very creatively led. I do think that other institutions that are less successful are, you can tell, you can very easily tell if you just, you know, scratch a little bit under the surface, who's doing what and how they're approaching it. You've had such strong viewpoints and even rebellious stances in the past, both with personal opinion as well as the nature of the work that you've brought to some of these brands you're talking about. Is it true that you consider yourself as being shy? Yes, I, <laughs> I know. People are very shocked by that. I am not good in a public space. I am shy. But at the same time, I feel very strongly 
that in order to do the best work possible, I have to speak up. So it's this Jekyll and Hyde situation that I deal with, or maybe not Jekyll and Hyde, maybe it's just this <laughs> yin and yang, I don't know, but I need to speak up, I need to be forthright, I need to be confident in my point of view, because if you're not confident, you just get squashed. But at the same time as a woman, don't forget, a confident man in the corporate world is a strong person. A confident woman in the corporate world is, I don't know, can we say bad work, is a bitch or difficult to work with or, or intransigent. There is still that deep anomaly in terms of male versus female in the corporate field. Especially American corporate culture is quite difficult and not very creative in terms of how they approach things. It is somewhat of a battle. And I don't know if it's solvable. I don't know if it should be solvable. I, I really don't know. I don't know if I can even voice an opinion on it. It just kind of is what it is. I just don't think that you always get the best result within the confines of all these rules and regulations and checks and balances and opinions. But I, I don't have the solution for that. I, I don't know. I don't ever want to own a company. Speaking of America versus Europe or any other comparison you want to draw, the reality is things like travel help us avoid character calcification or associating any particular idea too much with it being what is normal versus everything else being foreign. What types of benefits do you feel like you had the chance to experience as a result of having lived in so many incredible places, including the obvious pillars like Paris, London, New York? I mean, I consider myself incredibly lucky. I think the <laughs> greatest education you can have is travel. I tell my it kids really... that. I tell anyone that. It's a luxury. Obviously, it really is a luxury. But the greatest education, in my opinion, has been to be able to travel. And it's the greatest pleasure. It's the most enriching thing that we can possibly do for ourselves. I've taken nothing but positive things from everywhere that I've ever been to. I've learned languages. I think also speaking different languages is incredibly useful because you can understand the nuances of human nature through language. And so for me, I don't think I'd be able to do what I do had I not traveled. And do I not travel? And travel doesn't necessarily mean a 15-hour flight. It could literally be to the next town. I live in New York City, and I think that New York is made up of a, a series of different villages. And when we venture uptown, it really does feel like a foreign place. So you don't sometimes have to venture very far to understand the world and the culture and human nature. I think it's so, so, so important. More important than formal education, I will say that. That I agree. And having such an incredible wealth of knowledge and comprehension on anything from art, culture, fashion so many of the things that we're talking about today, you still manage to create this aspirational quality in the creative work without alienating the consumer. And I was curious as to whether or not you ever found it hard to sort of marry that art to a commercial purpose. I, I'm not an elitist. I don't believe in elitism. I mm -hmm. think that we live in a world today where we have so much information available to us. And I think that when people are presented with information, like, did you know? People are genuinely really interested. 
you know, I work with some very young people who haven't had the privilege that I've had in my life of travel and education and the ability to purchase art and books and poetry and what have you. And when I share information with them, there isn't a single person that's like, I'm not interested in this. Don't talk to me about this. I think human nature is curious. And I think that when I see that and when I understand that, there's no reason not to share the information. I always find it really fascinating and so interesting in, you know, the art market, which I think is just odd and weird where art has become a commodity. You know, who is it? Fran Leibovitz. What did she say? She said something actually brilliant. She said, people are more interested in the price of the art than the art itself. And that is so true. But the art itself, I think, is for everyone and should be available to everyone. And everyone should have the privilege to understand it. So if you present it on that level, then why not? Absolutely. And I know it's cliche to bring up Andy Warhol when speaking about art, but I love the fact that you love him. And I wanted I wanted to know what that sort of first point of love was for him when you first discovered him and what it was that you were so enamored by. Oh my God. Andy's the greatest. Andy is the goat. I've learned to say that unashamedly because at some point people were like, what do you mean, Andy Warhol? It's not like I don't like other artists and other painters. You know, I'm a huge fan of Manet. I'm a huge fan of Ed Rocher, Rothko. I could name a hundred artists that I'm very, very, very enamored with. But Andy Warhol, maybe it was because he came from commercial art, maybe because he was, you know, really the artist of the people. He was funny. He was self-deprecating. He was very democratic in his art. You know, art speaks to an emotion, right? You can't really explain why you like one thing versus another, whether that be, you know, fine arts, painting, sculpture, music. You couldn't tell me today why you prefer one piece of music versus another. It's something that speaks to you emotionally, chemically, somewhere in the brain. This touches you. And for me, maybe it was the, the at the time when I first discovered Warhol, I was, again, very young. I was in London. I think he did some exhibit there and I saw something about it. I don't really remember. And it was seeing the portraits of the, the Marilyn. You know, nobody is going to tell me that the portrait of Marilyn Monroe isn't a modern day Mona Lisa. If Mona Lisa is great, then so is the portrait of Marilyn. I don't think people recognize how important he was and is to the democracy of art. And I think that art should be democratic. Art should be available to all. I think not enough people visit museums, not enough people go and see the stuff in person. I always love watching people in, in museums, watching them watch the art. Sometimes you can tell that they're there to view the art. Sometimes they're there because they're told that they have to go see the art. And it's always really interesting. But the fact that it's available and you never know, there might be that one person that is going there for, they're not sure why, but then something touches them. That's good enough for me. So I think Warhol was incredibly brilliant, incredibly democratic, incredibly modern in his approach to art and graphic design because he was a graphic designer as well and changed the course of art forever to this day. What do you think about things like digital art or AI? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think AI is not going away. I think it's a little rudimentary now. We'll see. But I think you cannot take away the human element from art. You cannot take away the human element. I think the artists are born to be artists. If you look at the history of art, 
you know, at, at conception, all these chemicals come together and form this human and stuff in the brain happens. And, you know, obviously I'm clearly not a scientist by my explanation here, but I think some people are just born to do things. You know, you look at, you know, ballet dancers, for example, they all have that same body type and that beauty and that elegance. You know, I could never be a ballet dancer. I just, my body wasn't made for it. I could train as as hard as I could for a hundred years and I would never be a ballet dancer. And I just think that some people are born to do certain things and artists are born to create certain types of art. And that's why you have these great art movements and these great artists. And I don't think a machine could replicate a Pollock or a Rothko or a de Kooning or a Warhol. I don't think that any sort of digital programming could create these people. It could emulate them, right? And it might be a source for some sort of process, you know, oh, I need to create a storyboard in order to then recreate it effectively with human beings. I just don't think AI can, but you know, I could be proved wrong. Who knows? I love the digital world. I got my first Mac. I got a Quadra 700. They couldn't do anything because I was very aware that the digital age was coming and very, very interested in it. So it's not that I'm anti-digital. I'm very digital, but I just don't think that a machine can replace a human being. But who knows? Well, what do you think was better then? And what is it that you think is better now? What's better now is the access to everything. I think we have access to absolutely everything. There is nothing that we can't learn today. It's incredible. And I love the ability, oh, I want to look this up. And all the information is there. Sometimes you have to sift through it, but the information is there. I'm a big book collector and I love books. And I think books as art are unbelievably important But I do think that our access to information today is priceless. And we are very lucky to be living in a world where we have that access. I can find any image and not know the source and reverse check it. And in a few seconds, I can find the source. I can find the caption around it, the reason for its existence within seconds. And that to me is just incredible. It really is. And we have to ask the hallmark question of this show as our big final closer. What is contemporary now? All right. What's contemporary now? So I'm going to speak in terms of where we are today. What's contemporary now is the youth rebellion and the rebellion with regards to government, with regards to authority, with regards to injustice in this world. And that started, didn't start a few years ago. It started many years ago with the civil rights movement. And obviously prior to that, what I am very much encouraged by is people taking to the streets and speaking up for injustice. That to me is what's contemporary now. Wow. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Ruba. This was an absolute gift. I could talk to you forever. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes. And for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. Oh.